You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We'll be reading the text for us this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but have had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. I would like to start this morning with a quote. So the quote is this. Our earth is degenerate in these latter days that are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book, and the end of the world is evidently approaching. End of quote. Evidently, the end of the world is approaching. And I believe that this is what every generation says. Considering the state of our world and the corruption of our cultures, I could actually justify to claim this quote as mine, because that's what I see in our surroundings. However, this quote is from an unknown author written on an Assyrian clay tablet dated to approximately 2800 before Christ. Evidently, the end is near, right? But to whose standard of time? Based on what truth claims, what evidence can truly testify that this is the end? A very common saying in every generation, and I'm sure that you have said that at some point in your life is, I want to leave the world a better place for my children. But at the same time, and at the same rate that we say that, we all know that the previous generation had it better than us. Our church, for example, enjoys beautiful diversity of ages. And we have older saints looking at younger saints and being glad that they are being able to endure this world. And the Lord is sustaining them in much darkness and depravity around them. 
But those who are older used to be younger, and the same happened to them then. And the cycle goes back generation after generation. We want to be better, but the world seems to only get worse. So it is not uncommon for major worldly crisis to stir, stir in humanity a longing for the end. We despise death. We avoid death. But the deathly state of our world shaken our minds. And we think this must be the end. It can't get any worse than this. Like the Assyrian who wrote that tablet, we look around us and we see the bribery. We see the corruption. We see children's rebelliousness. And we see a need to express opinions in books and in social media, no matter the cost of their relationships. So families are torn apart. Injustice is without limits. And often what happens is that our correct observation about the state of our world concludes with the desperate notion that this must be the end. We are always on the lookout and we are always wanting to point to our antichrists. It is so evident. It is so real. And for us Christians that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his return, we think if Jesus hasn't yet returned already, he better return soon because we can't endure much longer. And I believe that that's exactly the mindset that the Thessalonians had as Paul writes these verses we just read together. Four weeks ago, we studied that the first chapter, Paul introduced the theme of the second coming of Christ and the theme of the day of the Lord. And he introduced it in a tone of hope, of love, of pastoral care for these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. He showed gratitude for the righteous judgment of God to come because for these brothers and sisters, it meant relief for their persecution and afflictions because they were remaining in their faith, in their love, in their hope. But remember that Paul was simply hugging them before he was getting ready to gently rebuke and to bring teaching, exhortation to the life of the Thessalonians. So like a good father who knows when to discipline his child at the proper time, Paul now brings corrections that they so needed. So in his authenticity, he wants to resolve this fuzzy state of mind, this shaken state of mind that they had. Because they had a false claim, and the false claim was this, that the day of the Lord had already come, and he had to deal with that false claim as a pastor, as a shepherd. There was a false claim going on in that church, and Paul, as the minister, as the one who planted that church, as a father, he had it to rebuke that false claim. And since his first letter seemed not to be enough, Paul now goes straight to the point in his second letter. And this is his point. We will clearly know that the day of the Lord has come based on what will happen when that day comes, what must happen before that day comes, and the consequences for misunderstanding it. We will clearly know that the day of the Lord has come based on what will happen when that day comes, what must happen before that day comes, and the consequences for misunderstanding those clear signs. So we're going to attempt to follow Paul's very robust argument in these verses that we just read about the day of the Lord. And there's three aspects about this false claim that he's raising awareness to the Thessalonians. 
Three aspects. The first aspect is the dangers of the false claim. The second aspect is the rebuttal of Paul to the false claim. And the third aspect is the outcome of the false claim. So let's begin with the dangers of this false claim. And we find that in verses 1 and 2 and in verse 5. So we find these dangers in verse 1 and 2 and also in verse 5. He says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being together to him, we ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And then in verse 5 he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So differently from his first chapter, Paul in his second chapter is not as structured. He didn't follow a line of thought as well structured as he did in the first chapter. So his rebuke here on the day of the Lord in verses 1 through 12 is laid out as a one-way phone call that no theologian was able to tap it. We don't have the recordings of those, that phone call. We just have his rebuke, his exhortation. So verse 5 suggests that Paul is being is basing this entire section on sermons or perhaps on conversations that he already had with them in person. And we do not have the audio recordings of these conversations. So there is a couple of things that we must be aware here. That we don't know the specifics of what Paul had taught them. We also don't understand the full nature of this false claim that they believed in. We just know the specific that they believed that the day of the Lord had already come. And we are only hearing Paul correct their misunderstanding, not assess their misunderstanding, not to expel their misunderstanding. So therefore, much of Paul's specific choices of terms here seems to be connected to something we do not know. And we will not know until the day of the Lord. So preparing for this sermon made me truly sympathize with what Peter said about Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3.16. He says this, there are some things in them, in Paul's writings, that is very hard to understand. And I think Peter was probably referencing to this passage right here. Peter also suggests that many try to twist the words of Scripture, specifically difficult texts like this one, because it is about the future. So by doing so, these people that twist the Scriptures, they themselves become shaken in mind and alarmed. So they also lead others in the same path of being shaken in mind and alarmed. So there's an irony as we interpret this text. The irony is that what Paul is rebuking the Thessalonians for, which is being shaken in mind, is the caution that we must ourselves have as we interpret this passage. In other words, we believe that Scripture is clear, and even hard texts like this, when interpreted in the light of the whole counsel of God, are profitable for our souls. But be careful. Speculations are not helpful. Only the clear teaching of God's word is. So look how Paul himself deals with this issue with the Thessalonians in verse 1. He says, Now concerning two things, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being together to him. So these two things, the second coming and the glorification of the saints, which a lot of people call the rapture, are alluding to what he just said in chapter five, chapter 1. 
So these are the doctrines that he's talking about. But he also says that these true doctrines are the source of the Thessalonians' shaken minds and state of alarm in verse 2. Because if you look at the end of verse 2, he connects these two doctrines to the major doctrine of the day of the Lord. So they were separating these doctrines from the major doctrine of the day of the Lord. Eschatology is the part of theology that studies the end of times. Eschatology is the study of the end of times. All Christian theologians agree that the end of times will come. But there are many differences as for the specific details of it. And the most common difference is the interpretation of the rapture, for example. This glorification of the saints when Jesus will come back. Paul in his first letter instructs the Thessalonians to view the day of the Lord as something encouraging because of the things that will happen in the coming day of the Lord, which is the rapture. All other saints, both dead and alive, will be brought to Jesus into eternity with Jesus to heaven. That's the rapture, be taken up to the Lord. But our concern with the timing of a specific shouldn't blur our view of the coming day of the Lord. And that's what Paul is arguing here. Our view of the specifics cannot be used as the whole. Overemphasis on the specifics of eschatology may appear spiritual, intellectual, and even intelligence to talk about it. But when it causes your brothers and sisters to be shaken in their minds and to lose their firm foundation of the understanding that the day of the Lord is coming, such overemphasis is going to simply reveal Christian immaturity and perhaps misplaced pride on the person that is overemphasizing these doctrines. So what the Thessalonians were doing was falling prey to the false idea that they could hold on to their sufferings, to their afflictions, and to their persecutions as the sign that the day of the Lord had come. And there is no other necessary elements that they need in order to believe that. But that is false. And Paul has to refute that. They were understanding that part of what must happen before the day of the Lord comes was evidence enough to prove that the day of the Lord had come. So imagine on a rainy day, you need an umbrella and you look for your umbrella, but you only found a broken umbrella and actually the handle is coming off, but you're desperate. So you just grab the handle and you go into the rain and you try to cover yourself just with the handle of the umbrella and thinking that that's going to solve your problem. But it won't. It's only going to worsen it because you're going to be worried all the way that you're getting wet. That's exactly what they were doing. And Paul is strategically rebuking them here on this matter, referencing three dangers that they were facing. And these three dangers are dangers that we all face and that we must all be prepared to face. Look what he says at verse 2. Do not be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed either by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What he's saying is that false claims about the day of the Lord undermine our faith and our unity. They may come as a spirit or spoken or written word. So let's look at each one of them individually first. The seemingly spiritual words that hijacks our security. 
Spiritual words that hijack our security. That's what the word spirit here means. It is a subtle wind of doubt over a rock of certainty that causes a rolling disaster. It is a wind of doubt that when touches a rock of certainty is going to start causing a rolling disaster. When we are tempted to quickly believe someone or something that goes completely against what we were clearly given, the instructions that we were clearly given, an alarm should sound in the spiritual heart of believers. But it's alarm not of desperation, but an alarm of caution. Beware. How many have fallen prey to rumors that the turn of the century was the day of the Lord? How many have fallen prey to that the alignment of the stars is going to be the day of the Lord? Or the Holocaust was the day of the Lord? Or that the election of a certain man into office is the day of the Lord? Church, what Paul is urging us here is that we must not be shaken by any spirit that camouflages itself with the appearance of truth. Not only in the outside of the church, but also in the inside of the church. We are not to, we are to watch carefully how we talk to one another and about one another, specifically about doctrines that are, should not be causing us to divide. Holding too, too strictly to positions that scripture is not as emphatic on and using them to sway other brothers and sisters into division should not be the mark of those who remain firm in the character of God and his word. So beware of the spirit of gossip, specifically of those doctrines that are not super clear, but you hold so dear and you think everybody is wrong and you are right. But also, secondly, clear spoken words, when not checked by the true word of God, have the power to wipe out our solid foundation. Notice the crescendo here in Paul's argument. He first starts with a little spirit. And now it's a little more clear. It's a spoken, loud, noticeable word. Someone most likely came into their place of worship and he was loudly speaking against the doctrine that Paul had already taught them by spoken word and by letter. So these false claims were now very articulate, very eloquent. They had a beginning, a middle, and an end. They made sense. It's got to be true. Look how it makes sense. He's even basing it with some other written documents. Look at that. And according to commentators, this person could either be impersonating Paul, pretending to be Paul, or simply speaking out of their warped understanding of the signs and using that as authoritative rule for the congregation. But in either case, it was a full sermon that caused a full false sermon that caused catastrophic consequences for the church in Thessalonica. You see, we are not to believe any spoken word simply because of the content, eloquence, or the personality of the one speaking. We must examine every spoken word in light of the final and authoritative, thus saith the Lord in Scripture. John had a similar warning to his readers when he said in 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
We have the privilege here at Redemption Church to have a plurality of pastor voices here in our congregation. We check one another's sermons. We review each other's biblical references. So we try to protect the pulpit from voices that may lead the congregation astray with false doctrine. But be attentive because the ultimate responsibility for this is not ours, is yours. It's the church's. The church has to be attentive because the church has the tendency to be caused to be shaken in their minds when somebody eloquent comes up here and starts speaking, speaking a bunch of nonsense. Be attentive. Encourage and submit to correct teaching. Encourage and submit to correct teaching, but also rebuke and reject false teaching completely. Rebuke and reject false teaching completely. Now, the last step of Paul's crescendo is the written word versus the spirit and the spoken. Now it's the written word. So thirdly, tampering with or adding to the word of God will bring confusion to what is clear. Tampering with or adding to the word of God will bring confusion to what is clear. A letter seeming to be from us, said Paul, the inspired divinely author of scripture. This could be another letter from someone claiming to be Paul, for example, a fraudster adding to scripture, or someone rewriting what Paul had already written, therefore tempering with scripture. And both apply in the same way. We are to believe that the canon of scripture is closed, completely closed. Because if we don't, if we think that every single thing that they find in archaeology comes and adds to scripture, all we are doing, we are building our churches in sinking sand on top of a earthquake belt. It's not going to stand. Books, blog posts, old articles, spiritual essays, as helpful as they can be, if any of them in any way contrary is contrary to what is right here in Scripture, we should consider them rubbish and disregarded completely on our waiting for the day of the Lord. There's nothing on them that is going to supersede, add to, or change our beliefs of the day of the Lord from Scripture. There's no amount of scientific evidence, philosophical libraries, theories, or data analysis that can even come close to disputing the truth of God's Word. So church, as Paul says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way whatsoever. Whether it is through rumors, through speeches, through written documents, Scripture is sufficient to defend itself. And that's exactly what Paul does in the next passage that we're going to study. Our second point today is Paul literally defending Scripture, writing Scripture. That's our second point, the rebuttal to the false claim. The rebuttal to the false claim. Paul continues his rebuke by providing the correct teaching about some of those components of the day of the Lord to come. And we find those in verses 3 and 4, and also verses 6 through 8. Verses 3 and 4, and also verses 6 through 8. We already know that the false claim is that the day of the Lord had already came. For the Thessalonians, it was there. They believed it wholeheartedly. And Paul bases his rebuttal on his own spoken word, and on his letter, and also his knowledge of the whole counsel of God. 
But we only have access to the last two, his letter and the whole counsel of God. But that is enough for us to understand with clarity his main argument, with some room for different views on the specifics regarding his spoken word that we don't have access to. Mainly about the time, and we're going to see that. Look at with me at verse 3. Look at with me at verse C. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless. For that day will not come unless. Notice that there is a must, and he says that in the negative. Will not come. That's a must. But there's also a before coming from the, way, the word unless or until. So there is a necessity for these events, and there is a time for these events in order for the day of the Lord to come. A necessity for these events and a time for these events in order for the day of the Lord to come. There shouldn't be any disagreements as for the necessity. They have to happen. But there's room for Christian disagreements. We can agree to disagree as of the time of these events. So his main rebuttal is that the day of the Lord will not come unless two things happen again. Look what he says. First, the rebellion and the men of lawlessness must be revealed. So the rebellion in the text here is portrayed by Paul as this mystery of lawlessness at work. That's what he says in verse 7. It's a mystery of lawlessness. And also it is the activity of Satan. That's what he says in verse 9. So this rebellion is referred to in this text in the neuter form of the nouns. So there's a neuter form for the words and pronouns to point to an effect, a force, a work, not a person. Right? But the second thing is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. This is a person, a man, the son of destruction. So if you look in the text, you're going to find pronouns such as he, him, whom. Those are all in the masculine form in the Greek. And they highlight a historical man who already exists in concept, but will be fully revealed in reality at his time. And they both will occur, the rebellion and the revelation of the men of lawlessness. And remember, there's room to disagree with when those two will occur, but they have to occur before the day of the Lord comes. And Paul begins his explanation by giving characteristics of these men of lawlessness in verse 4. And he inserts aspects of the rebellion as the result of this figure's work. So both things are playing kind of simultaneously in Paul's argument. He's revealing who this man is. And as he's revealing this man, he's revealing what kinds of works this man is going to be doing in the, work, in the world. So let's explore them in the text. Verse 4. So he's talking here about the son of destruction. And he says, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The lawless one of God is the reverse Jesus. The reverse Jesus. If you ever read a novel and you have a little bit of understanding of literature, you know what an anti-hero is. An anti-hero is a character that carries all the characteristics of the hero, but in the complete opposite spectrum. So every time you hear a description of the anti-hero, you already know who the hero is. Because it's the complete opposite. So look at, look at what how the opposite it is of Jesus here. If Jesus is the son of righteousness, 
in the law of God who was revealed in flesh, the Antichrist is the son of destruction. And he himself will be the lawlessness in flesh. In Philippians 2.9, Paul says this, God has ex highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. But in verse 4, we read in our text that we see the Antichrist not only opposing other gods, but exalting himself against every so-called God or object of worship. At the birth of Jesus, Luke writes, He will be and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So God giving to Jesus the throne of his father David. It's been given to Jesus. Look at the Antichrist. The Antichrist, Paul says that he's going to take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He is the anti-Jesus. Jesus was humble. Jesus was the recipient of honor from the Father. Jesus was the one true God. He was the deserver of worship. On the opposite spectrum, we have the Antichrist. He is and he's going to be arrogant, self-exalting, proud, a self-made religious figure, and demanding of worship. Like Jesus, who chose for himself disciples and granted them the right to be sons and daughters of God and his representatives on earth, that's us, Christians. In John, in 1 John 2.18, we see John saying this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The Antichrist also has his disciples, if you will. Those who desire to see this false God in the place of the one true God. An important feature of the rebellion will be an attempt to dethrone God. To take God of his royal place, of his kingship place. God must be replaced with counterfeits until the last day when the final counterfeit will be revealed. And some of these lesser counterfeits, we usually talk about them happening in pretty much every generation as of type-like figures of Antichrist. Some are more prominent and noticeable than others. For the Thessalonians specifically, I believe that Paul is most likely making reference here to Emperor Caligula, which was a man who wanted his own statue to be placed in the temple of Jerusalem, claiming that he was the divine one that they were worshiping. In times of Ezekiel, we read, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I seat in the seat of the gods, I have the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God, though you have made your heart like the heart of a God. The same thing happens in Daniel, when King Darius is demanding worship for him alone, and no other God. They are antichrist figures, types, spread throughout all generations. So the rebellion, in a sense, is the accumulation of iniquity in the world, reaching the pinnacle of lawlessness on the day of the Lord. That's the perfect environment for the personification of lawlessness, the antichrist, to be revealed. When the pinnacle of lawlessness has reached its limit, and only the Lord knows when that's going to happen. But all those who remain in their state of deadness will increase 
on their corruption. All those who remain in their state of deadness will increase in their corruption. If you're not in Christ, when the day of the Lord comes, you will be part of the rebellion. That's what Paul is saying. If you're not in Christ, you will be an instrument of this antichrist to increase the state of lawlessness in the world. Pastor Justin wanted to find an official soccer jersey while we were in Brazil. Brazilian soccer jersey, very famous, very beautiful. The most beautiful soccer jersey in the world. <laughs> we tried, we looked, but we just couldn't find. We didn't really have time to go to the official stores. So we could only find counterfeits. And he wasn't satisfied with a counterfeit. He wanted the original one. So I told him the next time I go to Brazil, I'll get him the original one. Maybe he can buy it on Amazon or something. But you may not have a next time to find an original. You already have the original available to you. Christ's revelation of himself in his first coming gives us confidence that he is the humble one of God, that he is the all-glorious one, that he carries all the power, all the love, that he is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. So if you are here today and you are still enamored by these works of lawlessness, and you're still finding pleasures in your sins, and you're still satisfied with a counterfeit, repent today. Stop following the son of destruction and look to Jesus Christ, because only he is the son of righteousness. Stop building up this rebellion and join the building up of his church. Put your faith in the true hero of this story. Let Jesus Christ clothe you with his authentic righteousness today. And I, and I say again, do it today. Because the lawless one will not be restrained for long. And neither you nor I know for how long this restraining will continue. And this is what Paul is arguing next in verses 6 and 7. Look what he says in verses 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. That's one of those speech references that he was talking about in verse 5. That we cannot know for certainty what the Thessalonians knew here. Because he says, you know what is restraining. We don't. The Thessalonians did. But notice, on one side, we have the what the rebellion, and we also have the who, the antichrist of the enemy. So we have the what and the who of the enemy. But on the other side, we also have the what in verse 6 and the who in verse 7 of the one that is restraining the enemy. We have the what and the who and the what and the who on both sides. And the suggestions as for who and what is doing this restraining of the Antichrist, holding him back in a sense, it's numerous. There's several different interpretations for this. And let me give you some. I don't have time to give you all of them. So some people say that it's the Roman Empire according to the context. So it's an interpretation that is valid only for the immediate context and not for the future saints. So usually, most likely, probably not. There's some that say that it's law and order and the sword of God through political leaders. This is a more generalistic approach to this rebellion and to this antichrist, a more political approach to it, not too convincing. 
Others argue that this is the power of the Archangel Michael. As if Paul was applying direct visions from Daniel 12 to interpret this uh, event in the future. So he's applying direct Old Testament prophetic language to the day of the Lord's coming. That is very possible. A lot of good Christian scholars hold to this position. There's another position that says that this is the church and the Holy Spirit doing the holding back. Because in verse 6, Paul uses the neuter, what is restraining? And then in verse 7, the masculine, he, who is restraining. So there's a impersonal and there's a personal element to it. So people say the church and the Holy Spirit. So maybe they are the ones doing the withholding until the full revelation of the Antichrist will be done, will be released. Even though we can't know for certain these specifics, you can hold to any of these positions and have good arguments for them. The text gives us enough information to conclude this. The rebellion and the Antichrist are trying to be released, but there is another force and another person holding it back. So the rebellion and the Antichrist are trying to be released, to come to its full appearance. But there is a certain person or a force doing the restraining, holding it back. Let me try to give you an analogy. I hope it's helpful. Imagine this world as a dog park. Those that remain in their sins and lawlessness are walking dead dogs, stinking the whole dog park. The local church are flocks of sheep spread in the midst of these dead dogs. The sheep are emanating the smell of the blood of the lamb, and they are covered on the lion's robe. The devil is the dog trainer. He is on the outside of the fence, already defeated by the first coming of the Lord, but he is still enticing his big, ugly wolf to growl. The Antichrist is this big, ugly wolf. He is right at the gate, growling and hungry for the sheep. His growling worsens the stench of those dead dogs. As his breath touches the dead dogs, they increase in their rebellion, their deadness. The wolf is being restrained by an angelical collar, ready to be set loose into the park. The one holding the collar is the triune God himself in his sovereignty, observing and transforming those dead dogs into precious sheep by the breath of his mouth as they smell the blood of the lamb and they also see the lion. But in God's timing, on the day of the Lord, that gate will be opened and that ugly dog will be loosed. And on that day, the wolf is going to foolishly attempt to devour the sheep. But look what's going to happen in verse 8. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This wolf will be destroyed, completely consumed. The same breath who gives life to those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is the breath that is going to bring to eternal destruction the men of lawlessness. The glorious appearance of Jesus Christ at his second coming will be clear and bright and revealing because the Antichrist will not be able to hide anymore. He is going to be revealed for who he is, a counterfeit, and leaving no doubt in the eyes of the church, those that are secure in Jesus Christ. So Paul encourages the Thessalonians as he rebukes them. 
the false claims that they believed were now matched with the clear teaching that the day of the Lord is one of victory for the church, not of fear, not of confusion, not of despair. The one thing that eschatology should emphasize is that Jesus wins. He's the winner. That's what matters in eschatology, no matter your position on the specifics. Therefore, let, let us not coil in fear. Let us not coil that the loud growl of this evil one is coming at us. We are to resist those presumptuous arguments of those claiming that they know who the Antichrist is. Because scripture is very clear that only Christ will reveal him. If they claim that they know who the Antichrist is, they might as well be the Antichrist themselves. And when he does, when Jesus reveals this Antichrist, there's victory for the church. We, the church, must be confident that Christ's blood was poured for our forgiveness. And his robe of righteousness protects us from the effect of the rebellion even today. We must endure the stench of the sins of this world. While at the same time emanating the sweet aroma of the gospel. Because salvation that was offered to us, the same salvation that was offered to us when we were dead dogs, is also being offered to all those that are still dead in their delusions and sins. And as the Lord in his sovereignty continues to restrain this lawless one and the rebellion, we are not to despair, but we are to rest in his protection. We are to know that he will reveal him. So be bold in our evangelistic obedience. Know that Jesus Christ will come back. Therefore, share the gospel. Share the gospel. When that day comes, the appearance of his coming will be the final revelation. And all those who did not see Christ for who he is will experience the outcome of remaining in their unbelief. They're going to be believing in a lie. And that's our last point for this morning. The outcome of the false claim. The outcome of the false claim. That's verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul ends his rebuke to the Thessalonians with a very sobering truth. Very, very sobering. Condemnation is for those who willingly refused to believe the truth and so be saved. And will be under an eternal delusion, believing what is false. This is sobering because Paul's point in this text is very, very different from what we usually hear taught about hell and the consequence of sin. So pay attention here. The teaching of hell and the consequence of sin usually talks about being separated from God forever, as if those that are separated from God forever will be like in a cage, looking outside those that are outside of the cage, regretting forever their poor choices. And that's false. On the contrary, in verse 9 and 10, Paul is arguing that the devices of Satan played out by his son of destruction, his lies, his false signs, will be fully believed by those who refuse the truth. 
In other words, to reject the truth is by definition to believe in a lie. This means that hell is not a place of regret. It is a place of eternal delusion, of eternal torment. Those who remain in their sin when the lawless one is revealed will look to him as if he was not a wolf, but a little poodle that is cute and worthy to be pet. They're going to look to him thinking that he is the lamb himself, that he is Christ the Savior, that he is the truth. When that is a lie, they are in delusion. Verses 11 and 12 say that God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the condemnation that comes from God in his justice is his divine granting of what their heart so desired, a lie. It is God granting to them what their heart so desired, a lie. Being sentenced to hell is not an unjust overreaction from God, but is a just divine giving over to one's own desires. Paul says in Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he continues in 28, And since they did not fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they gave approval to those who practiced. Those who go to hell, to eternal damnation, to eternal destruction, will for all eternity believe what is false and remain in unrighteousness. I was once trying to explain this reality to a friend when I was sharing the gospel to him. And he was taking pleasure in his sin and parading it as it was normal and he was actually worthy to be followed. And in loving kindness, I tried, I did my best to point him to the truth of the gospel and the reality of hell. And he asked me this, so you're saying that if I don't repent of my sins and believe in Jesus, I will spend eternity doing what I'm doing and loving what I'm loving right now. I said, yes, in a sense, but you're eating rotten meat and thinking it tastes like ice cream. And then he responded, give me rotten rebuy then. Give me a rotten rebuy then. Perhaps in my failure to highlight that, he would also experience eternal outpouring of God's wrath upon him. My friend continues in his delusion. He believed that hell would be a place of eternal pleasure. He believed that hell would be an eternal enjoyment of steak. And my friend continues in his delusion. But a matter of fact is that hell is an eternal place of torment. Because that rotten rebuy will cause eternal indigestion, stomach pain, agonizing cramps for a whole eternity. And I pray that my naive overemphasis on one aspect of the day of the Lord may be superseded by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. And that the redemptive work of Jesus Christ may be believed by my friend 
I pray that my friend's eyes may one day be open and that the Lord may transform his rotten heart into a heart of flesh. And my prayer is that you, as well as him, may not think that the day of the Lord is far away and that you can wait. Because when that day comes and you don't know when, that rotten rebuy he so desired will be served on an eternal plate of disillusion. Those that are condemned will gnash their teeth. They're going to burn for all eternity without being consumed in their delusion. They're going to think that they're laughing and that they're getting tan. True laughter and true joy is only found in Jesus Christ alone. Do not be fooled. When the day of the Lord comes, whenever it might be, Jesus will return. His saints will be taken into eternal truth and joy. And before that, whenever it might be, the rebellion will be installed. Christ will be completely and utterly rejected. And the Antichrist will be revealed. And there will be no second chances. Condemnation and destruction will come. We might not promise to leave this world a better place for the next generation. We may try. We may try to do our best and follow the Lord with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds. But one can clearly see that the one who is coming will make the world a better place. He will make the world anew. He will make the, the world his forever. We know sorrow. We know pain. We know destruction. The son of destruction will be defeated once and for all. And we must teach that clearly. We must not believe in any false claims, but rebuke them precisely and effectively with the word of the, the Lord. The dangers of the false claims, they, they have been refuted by Paul very clearly in this passage. It is our job to beware of their outcome and to preach the gospel faithfully. So look to Jesus if you haven't yet and be saved today. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the clear teaching of God's word. Thank you because the Bible is enough, it is clear, it is needed. And Father, we can trust it to have all the information we need to know that you will send your son again. That Jesus Christ will return, that we are going to be taken up to live with him forever if we are found in him. But also that those that are not in Jesus Christ will rebel and reject him and believe in a lie. And be condemned. So help us, Father. Help us to be, to be faithful to our command to make disciples of Jesus Christ. To emanate this sweet aroma of the gospel. So that dead sinners may come to life by the power of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you because when that day comes, there's going to be victory. There's going to be joy and praise for your church. It is in Jesus' name. And I pray, amen.